Lord, as we come before you tonight, we come before you humbly. We come before you broken. We come before you destitute. We acknowledge that we cannot do anything on our own. But Lord, our cry is a cry of desperation, asking and relying solely on your mercy for our salvation. Lord, we ask that at this time, as your word is open and it is preached, you may give us understanding. And with understanding, O oh God, I pray that you would give us new hearts to receive your word, to live rightly by it, and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, we're only going to read three verses. It's verses 28 to 30. Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28 to 30. In reverence for God's word, why don't we all stand to our feet and read this in one voice together. Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28 to 30. Let's read it all together. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Two weeks ago, I came back from Florida at a conference in Orlando. Uh, we were pretty excited because this is a conference that we had never gone to before, and um, it's in Orlando. So, win-win, so we thought, right? Win-win, so this conference was amazing. We had some incredible speakers on the lineup. We were blessed, a bunch of our staff, and went and came back. I left Pastor Paul by himself to take care of the house, and he did an excellent job, so thank you. <laughs> but when we went there, we thought, oh, you know what? Because of COVID and everything, we can't come back right away. There's this, like, quarantine period that people want. And so why don't we stay and, you know, spend the weekend in Orlando. There's things to do there, right? Uh, there was Disney World. There's um, Universal Studios. There's alligators. So many things to see. And so when we got there, we looked at the weather. It was going to be beautiful. As soon as we landed, 70 and then our staff and I were telling, like saying to each other, ha ha, look what we left back home, people wearing winter jackets still, and here we are in our like t-shirts and shorts. Uh, and then the cold front hit, right? And so this wasn't in the weather report, we looked at it, it was fine, but a day later, it, it went down to the 50s, and all we had were shorts and t-shirts, and so it was really cold, so even when we visited like these places we didn't really want to go in, it was too cold, and all these things happened. So we ended up not going to Disney World or uh, Universal Studios and eating some really mediocre food. Uh, I say all of this because we plan all, all these things, and 
Now we have so much tech, we have so much knowledge. We always think, you know, there's so many things that we can prep for. So many things. And then when we're caught off guard, we're honestly, we're surprised. Like, oh, how can this be? Um, I want to say this because Jesus was never caught off guard. Nothing went, he's like, whoa. It's like, I didn't know this. This, I had no idea, like, this was out of my control. If you look at the Gospel of John and you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he is always in control. Even as we read this short passage, every single moment, he was in control. You know, some people think Good Friday is a, a day where we should be very overly emotionally wrought. Uh, we go around maybe even dragging our feet. Maybe we think that's the right way to do it. And I, I wonder why. Why is it that we are tended to these kinds of proclivities? Why is it that we want to do this? Is it because, is it because we think that when we look at Jesus on the cross, we think, oh, what a poor, pathetic man. He was so helpless. Because if that's what is leading us to our emotional response, then I have to tell you that that's not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures show us that he has always been in control from the very beginning to the very end of his ministry. He knew what he had to do. And even as we read this, we know that Jesus has always been in control. In the very last portion of this passage, he even bows his head and gives up his spirit. That means he rendered up his spirit. He said, okay, now I decide to give up my spirit and die. To the very last breath, Jesus was in control. So we can be tempted to come and look upon Good Friday simply emotionally, and it is an incredibly emotional journey. However, if we stop there and make emotion the pinnacle, the definer of these offense, the lens in which we see Good Friday and the only lens, then we will come up short. Easter then becoming only emotionally freeing. And then it will only leave us still oppressed and it will leave us wanting. Because... Guilt isn't only emotional. I'm moving from topic to topic, but I hope that you can uh, keep up. We have a saying, I feel guilty. As if to divulge to the other party that because I feel guilty, I must be guilty. I feel guilty, right? But one more minute of thinking on this would have us realize that that really isn't the case at all. If a murderer doesn't feel guilty about his murders, it has nothing to do with him being guilty of those murders. And we call these people sociopaths. So why are we prone to certain statements like, I feel guilty, and maybe overly wrought emotional displays during Good Friday? The emotion and displays of, of emotion are, are, I believe, tied then to our understanding of truth. So if you feel guilty, then you are in a sense trying to convey something true that you recognize. 
This is confused in today's world when we have been taught to express our feelings because that's the true self, right? What you feel is true. That's not true. What you feel is simply what you feel to be true. And it isn't necessarily true. Emotions aren't necessarily wrong, but they aren't necessarily right either. They are subject to what you believe to be true. Then emotions, then, are an extension of what you believe to be true. I'm saying all this so that we understand what we should feel, why we should feel it, how we should feel it, and how the Bible shows us where emotion plays. That's step one. Step two, you don't always know what to believe, or you don't always know what is true. Just because your heart tells you something doesn't mean it's good. If I had followed my heart in all instances, I'd be in jail, or worse, dead. The world today says that if that happens, it's not your fault. It's the fault of the outside world. It's the system's fault, right? If we only got rid of the systems, then we could be free. This is why we see so many abolish movements going on right now. If I could only get rid of these outside forces, I could truly be free. And these kinds of philosophies were the drivers of things like the French Revolution, which actually sparked the Day of Terror. These leading philosophers were people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who taught that we are born sinless and free, and it's the outside forces that subjugate us, oppress us. And the day of terror is when the French people round up clergymen and anybody in authority and kill them because it's the authority that's oppressing us, so we got to kill them. These ideologies would be developed into now what we see playing out in today's society as Social Marxism, abolish this, defund this, get rid of this old power structure, and we will be free because, because deep down, I am pure, I am sinless, I am good is the ultimate statement. And history repeats itself in this way. When we follow these ideologies, these ideologies that say that we are good, and when we see it play out, what we really see is how evil we really are. Don't we see it now and today? When you open up your phones to your social medias, when you turn on the TV, we see hatred, we see violence, vitriol, against anyone who would dare disagree with you. Lies, extortion, theft, murder are all on the rise. Follow your heart. But that's what we've been doing all this time, and look where we are now. But the Bible tells us differently. The Bible tells us through the prophet Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the Hebrew word for desperately sick is the Hebrew word for incurable. It is beyond treatment. The heart is deceitful above all things and it is incurable. There's nothing that can cure it. And if we keep on following our heart, we will continue to degrade into a wretchedness that we have not seen before in our lifetime. 
which leads us to point or step number three. God promises. He promises us not a cured heart, but he promises us a new heart. In Ezekiel, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Recently, I have been watching uh, a lot of medical dramas. I don't know why. It's just one of those phases, I guess. And my wife and I went through that phase. We watched one medical drama. And it's, it's fascinating, you know, the whole hospital scene and the drama that can play out. Obviously, it's all dramatized, so we know that in the hospital it might not be as dramatic. But out of all the organs that you can donate or partially donate. And know, know this, that the organs that you need to donate, you donate because they are vital to life. You need these organs to live. And out of all those organs that you can donate or partially uh, donate, uh, you can donate your kidneys, part of your liver, lungs, heart, pancreas, and intestines. But out of all those organs that you can donate or partially donate, there's only one organ that you can't donate while you're alive. Which brings me back to point or step number one. If you want the right emotional response, it must come from a new heart. Guilty feelings are a subjective matter, and if it's a subjective matter, then it must be subject to the object of truth we are, regardless of whether we feel it or not, whether we feel guilty or not, we are guilty. And guilty of what? We are objectively guilty before God of breaking his laws and decrees. God created the world. He made us in his image. It was good. He loved it. And we, from our first parents to now, we continually break his commandments. His rules are good and lead to fruitfulness and prosperity, but with every generation we have found ways to forgo following his dictates and try to come up with other laws and mandates. Look at our current country and the state that we are in now. We're making up all these new laws and they're completely against God's dictates. We think that his ways are unjust, they are archaic, they are old, so we must come up with better ones. When God made the world, he made it according to his character and his goodness. And when we inject our sense of morality to circumvent his clear statutes, we corrupt the original design and blaspheme his character. We could say things like, I know better than the old ways. And I hate the old ways. However, however, God is good and God is just. He will not let evildoers continue to perpetuate evil. There is judgment and it will lead to the final judgment that the ultimate judge will bring. We see the present judgment happening when societies deteriorate where morality is boundlessly derisive. 
It's happening here right now before our eyes. There is judgment and there will be judgment. The world isn't going to end because of climate change. It's going to end because Christ will come down and execute his final judgment. This is what we have to understand. If we don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel. Because if you understand this, then we understand what kind of plight we are. You know, when we are emotional and we see that this kind of word, when we're here in the presence of God and we are weeping, then isn't it because that we recognize our wretchedness and we recognize God's holiness? That's why we would become emotional. Not because he's some helpless guy on the cross. Oh, poor him. It's because we are so wretched and he is so holy. And that we are not left alone to our own devices. The scriptures constantly talk about a remnant, a people that God will preserve for himself. In Isaiah 6, after, from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 6, is just judgment, 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 judgment. And Isaiah 6 comes along and it talks about the judgment of God and the holiness of God. It ends with this verse in Isaiah chapter 6. The holy seed is its stump. When everyone was bowing down to Baal, Elijah thought he was the only one left. He's like, I'm the only guy left, God. I'm the only one following you. Look at me doing all these things, this altar that I set up. And there's thousands of Baal priests, people and Asherah priests that are just doing all these abominable things. I'm the only one left. That's how he felt. That's how he felt because of the vast number of people following Baal. He felt utterly alone. No one else serves God, that's what he thought. Everyone has abandoned God for lesser things like sex, food, drink, and money. These are things that people fight and kill over now. Our morality is tied around redefining these things too. And Elijah goes, I am alone. And God responds by telling him he has kept 7,000 pure who have not bowed down to Baal. In Romans 11, Paul says that even at the present time that he was writing, there is a remnant, and that remnant is chosen by grace. What happens to this remnant? What is this remnant? In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The heart, the good work that is going to be completed in us, all of these things are centered around one person. The passage that we read tonight has a word that's repeated twice. It's the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's what we see here translated as finished. But what is finished and how is it correlated to the remnant? You know, growing up, I heard a lot of criticism. Criticisms coming from people who hate the Old Testament. It's all so judgy. All this judgment this and judgment that. 
preach about grace. And if you read the prophecies of the Old Testament, it's true. There's a lot of judgment. That's why people say, I don't like the Old Testament. Let's not follow the Old Testament anymore. I like Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And we've gone over Matthew. When Jesus himself comes to earth and tells people that he is the Son of Man, the one prophesied in the Old Testament that will come to judge the world. He, in fact, judges the cities that he's going through in Matthew. Woe to you, Chorazin, right? And he goes, woe to you, all the cities that he's passing through. In the Old Testament, God tells of his judgment to the world. And Jesus comes and tells people that he is that judge. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's who he is. Jesus is the judge. We are right to fear him, to bow down to him. But the passage goes on. Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When Jesus says all is finished, what he is saying is that all the scriptures are now completely and absolutely fulfilled in him. Judgment will come to the world and he will be that judge. Those that hate God, those that disobey his commandments, those that blaspheme his laws and make up laws that circumvent and go against his laws and his decrees, those that take his gifts and abuse them by dishonoring God and hurting others, Jesus will come and he will be that judge. In Isaiah 11, it is prophesied, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus is judge. And Jesus also says that he is the fulfillment of that, but he is also the fulfillment that by the grace of God, there will be a remnant. Those that are saved, not because of any merit on our own, but because of the sheer grace and God's incredible mercy will they be saved. And Jesus then, for those that are saved, Jesus takes on that judgment that is meant for them, the eternal damnation that we deserve, and takes that damnation and puts it on himself. By this act, Jesus pays the price, a price no man can pay on his own, and ransoms us, giving us 
not the eternal judgment that we deserve, but eternal favor that Jesus merited through his perfect life. Tetelestai, translated as finished, isn't just finished, but it means completed in totality. Every single dimension, every single side of the cube that you're looking at, the scriptures being fulfilled, judgment, mercy, grace, justice, all these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In totality, it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The word tetelestai comes from the verb telos, which is very important. It means the end or the goal. When Sam and I do, we do our podcast, uh, I try to look for the telos of every, mo- every modern thought or ideology. And you'll see this when I argue against things like racial reconciliation where the gospel is absent or worse, replaced. The gospel is replaced with some new one. This current movement to bring awareness to racial hate apparently is only increasing it. Do you know why? Because that has nothing to do with alleviating the burden. You just keep on putting burden on people more and more. You're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. And I hate it. I hate it. When Jesus said, Tetelestai, it was in the complete and absolute sense. He finished it. I'll give you an example. There was uh, a senior in college, and because of uh, the conflict in his coursework, he couldn't take biology one-on-one, so he had to take it in his senior year to finish and get his degree. And so he would, you know, very jokingly call it bonehead biology because it's so simple, but as a senior, he had to take one of the most elementary courses of college. And the teacher on the first day of class, and he, in his, uh, in his um, journals, he writes that she was a very dear woman, so he doesn't do any ad hominem attacks, right? He, he's, a, he's a very wonderful man. But on the first day of class, he go, she says this, we're going to study biology together, and this is a scientific enterprise. We won't be concerned with teleological matters. Rather, we are going to confine our study to descriptive matters, trying to learn how it is that things operate in the biological realm and not ask questions about purpose. And so this senior was a senior in philosophy. And when he heard this, he almost jumped out of his chair. He couldn't believe what the teacher just said. So he waited after class and went up to her and said, how can we rule out teleology out of scientific inquiry? How can we study anything and not be interested in its purpose or significance. And she responded by saying, we leave that to the philosophers. This instance stayed with him, and I have no doubt that it shaped him in some large part because that's R.C. Sproul's ministry and has a lot to do with teleology. You see, tetelestai comes from the word telos, 
because Jesus was very concerned about purpose. He kept on repeating to his disciples that he came to do the Father's will. That was his purpose. And all that came down to this moment, the moment that we read. When he exclaimed, Tetelestai, he was saying that the mission and task that he came to do was fulfilled. The judgment that the world will receive is now assured in his death, but the promise of the holy seed, the remnant that God will save, the payment that was required for them to be saved is also paid in full. That's Tetelestai. Tetelestai was sometimes also used in the ancient Greek world where in areas of commerce where if you had purchased something and you got a receipt, they would stamp it tetelestai, meaning it's paid in full. When you bought something, they would be stamped this stamp so that you can know for sure this is my proof that it's been paid in full. And this is what Jesus exclaims on the cross. He paid for our sins to the very last drop. He paid for the sins of his people. On Good Friday... It's not simply the horrific physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross that we should be moved by. It's not even the physical, mental, and spiritual, in every sense possible, judgment that he received on our behalf. Jesus fulfills his telos. The last cry of tetelestai is a proclamation that he has fulfilled his mission And that's why we can be assured that we can now fulfill ours. Because he fulfilled his telos, we can fulfill ours. That's truly good. That's truly mercy. That's true kindness. And that is true love. The world does not know what to do or how to deal with telos. But those that know God know that when he said, Tetelestai, it is an incredible message of hope and promise that we receive. Promises that would lead the Apostle Paul to write things like this in Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And as I end and we go into a time of reflection and communion, I want to end by reminding you of the words of our Savior. When Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, are you able to hear this? And believes him who sent me, do you understand who Jesus is? Has eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you give us. Something truly undeserved, unmerited. The furthest thing from what we deserve, you give us. And here, reflect on it tonight and this weekend up until Resurrection Sunday. Oh God, we pray that you would forgive our hearts when we were calloused, when we acted like we had hearts of stone, not understanding the true fear of God that we should be holding, not knowing 
what it really means to love and follow you, to be your disciple. Oh God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to understand and see who Jesus Christ truly is so that we may truly live. Let's take this time to pray and reflect upon the passage and the word that we heard and ask God to continue to do a work in us so that it will not stop, but as he has promised his remnant, that he will continue to sanctify those that place their trust in him so that we will no longer blaspheme and sin against God, but rather our lives will be a living sacrifice that will glorify him to our very last breath just as our Lord and Savior. Let's take this time to pray.